This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 244 of the Literary Treks podcast, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as always is the redoubtable Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? I just hate everything right now. It's just that time, you know, it's just that time. <laughs> it's it's definitely it feels like a time well, to hate, really. I mean, it just feels like that's that's the time of the season it is, right? It's that time. Yes. It's the time to hate. To everything, there is a season. So, you know, it makes sense that a time to hate would be coming around. Why do you think we're saying that, Dan? I I honestly have no idea. Wait a minute. Is it because the book we're covering in the future today is A Time to Hate by Robert Greenberger? That's what it is. I, I wondered why I was in such a hateful mood. And it's not because I'm in a hateful mood. It's because the book is A Time to Hate, a next generation book as part of the A Time to series. Of course. Of course. I thought it was all some kind of weird coincidence, but I guess that makes sense. That that does make sense. <laughs> it does make sense. So yeah, Robert Greenberger, um, we've never had him on the show. And guess what? He's going to be on the show. I would never have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he reached out to us and said, hey, I saw you're doing a Time 2 series. I'd like to come on when you start talking about my books. So we're going to do uh, a Time to Hate on this episode. In a previous episode, we did a Time to Love, the first part of his book series in a Time 2 series, if that makes any sense. <laughs> There's two books it, that he did. It's always very complicated because it's it's a duology within a nonology, I guess, a nine book series. <laughs> I, I I think it would be called a nonology, but I've never actually heard that term used. I don't know. But... We're just literary guys. What would we know about words? Yeah, no, that doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> Who knows? Words. We do good mouth things, talking podcasts. Hey, <laughs> I've listened to podcasts <laughs> that sound like that before. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not this one. <laughs> no, not this one. S sometimes it feels like it, but I think most of the time we're at least a little articulate. Anyway. <laughs> yes. 
But we do have some news items, don't we? We do, absolutely. There are a couple of news items that we are going to cover before we get to the feature. And the first one I see is one that you've put on the outline here, and that is an upcoming book from Titan Publishing, and that's Star Trek Epic Episodes. So this looks pretty cool. Yeah, so this is from Titan Magazine, the team behind the magazine, and they're putting a compilation together of previous Star Trek magazine articles that focus on two-parter episodes of The Next Generation and the original series. And I don't think they're covering every two-parter episode, just the more notable ones. And this is due to come out this year, November of 2018. And part of the official blurb, this isn't the whole blurb, but it says presenting cast and crew interviews, guides, behind the scenes exclusives and revelations on the making of everyone's favorite epic episodes. And then we've got the cover. And I don't know if there's different variant covers or not, but the cover that we're previewing here of Star Trek epic episodes has Picard, or should I say Locutus of Borg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the only cover I've seen of this book, and it does look pretty cool. It's very, it's fairly simple. It's a green background with the Starfleet Delta with some faded pictures in the Delta, and in front, yeah, we've got Locutus of Borg, and it just says Star Trek Epic Episodes. And of course, they have picked the most epic of episodes to represent on the cover. So this looks pretty cool. I'm kind of interested in this. Yeah, especially what the articles are covering. I'm sure there's uh, very much behind the scene interviews, like they're saying. So I'd be really interested to see what the cast and crew have said. Uh, I don't know how far back these articles pull from the magazine. So if you're a Star Trek magazine collector and you have all the issues, you may have already read these articles at some point. But for a lot of us who don't have every issue or maybe have not even read Star Trek magazine, this would be new information for you. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we do also have another piece of news, and this was one that I just learned today. Now, for you guys listening to the podcast, we record these quite a bit in advance, so this might be old news. But J.K. Woodward, just a couple of days ago on his Instagram, mentioned that he's working on a Star Trek project that's coming in 2019. So the post on Instagram, he says, Using my teeny-weeny brush to paint teeny-weeny characters in a teeny-weeny amount of time to create a colossal double cover for a huge new project that's going to give you a whopper of a trekgasm when IDW Publishing announces it. So this looks kind of interesting, and I did press him a little bit on Twitter, and he's he's a vault. He's not giving up any secrets. But he did say that IDW would be announcing the project soon, so... It's very likely that by the time you hear this, we might already know what this is all about. That's true. I saw on Twitter, you make the comment and some of our other literary Trek friends <laughs> also making comments. <laughs> and yeah, he he wouldn't say anything, but it does make me want to believe that we will see the mirror universe again, because that's what he's been known to do. The image of Riker that we see looks like he's from the Prime Universe, and then we see a little bit of Crusher in there, too, and maybe the top of someone's head. I don't know. I can't tell, but um, it would be interesting to see what this is. So it's good because you know what this means? This means we're getting more comics. Yes, that's the main takeaway for sure. And I should also say it looks like if you look at the post on Instagram, 
he Riker at least is wearing a first contact era uniform so this looks to take place in the TNG movie era and also JK Woodward did say that he's just doing the cover for whatever this is and not the the main artwork so he wanted to uh give that little bit of a of a clarification <laughs> okay so my hope is if it's not mere universe i want this to be a titan comic I've Titan. seen some speculation that it might be that too. Uh, J.K. Woodward has not done the pips on the uniform yet, so we can't tell if he's a commander or a captain there. But I've seen some people hoping that maybe it would be a Titan-type comic. That would be really cool. A Titan-type comic. Say that three times real fast. <laughs> <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> we have actually seen the Titan pop up in like a frame or two in a past comic. And I think that was the Star Trek, the next generation hive series, if I'm not mistaken. And we got a glimpse of Riker on the bridge with his first officer veil. And I think it's just one frame, maybe two. We see yeah. the Titan, but I do that remember cool. that because I was really excited to see veil in, mm -hmm. uh, in that comic, which is funny because Vale's in the book that we're covering on the feature today. That's true as well. And actually, yeah, if you go on Memory Beta and look up Veil, vale, that's the picture they use because that's the only time we've ever seen uh, a representation of Commander Veil vale in comics or books or anything. Well, that just shows that they need to do a Titan comic. Heck yes. I would definitely read that. <laughs> well, what do you say we pop over to the feature? And before we get there, I should say we're doing something a little bit different this time around. So... Bruce and I are going to be talking about the book A Time to Hate before we welcome Robert Greenberger on. So if you're looking forward to that interview and you get a few minutes in and you're wondering, what the heck? I thought Robert Greenberger was going to be on this show. Be patient. We will have him on. So stay tuned for that. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, today we're talking about A Time to Hate by author Robert Greenberger. And this is, of course, the follow-up to A Time to Love which is, a, like we said, a duology within the nine-part A Time To series. So, first of all, let's jump right into it. We have this planet, Delta Sigma IV, and the mission that the Enterprise crew is on to this planet is totally spiraling out of control. We have security teams on the planet being overwhelmed. Things show no sign of improving. The two alien races that settled this planet a century ago and against all odds started to get along they're now fighting and war is breaking out all because the gas that kind of tranquilized them and kept them peaceful unbeknownst to them is also killing them and then the federation's cure to eliminate that gas from their system is making them revert to their old fighting ways so dr crusher we have desperately trying to come up with a cure and security teams getting overwhelmed and, and f with fighting on this planet and engineering teams trying to restore essential services while at the same time they keep getting torn down because of all the violence. So I don't know. How do you see this going at this point? Like what's going on here? And is there any sign that it's going to get any better? Well, I had a feeling that it will get better because we have our Enterprise crew there to make it happen. But exactly doesn't mean doesn't necessarily mean it will, but you know more than likely I thought it would. What I really like is that the these two races on this planet really go at each other, 
And well, that's not what I like about it, but what I'm saying is what I like is then they are not used to having these emotions. So it's almost on overdrive the way they're being and they're sabotaging themselves and their own water plants and electrical systems and so on and so forth. And it's almost reminds me of when people loot that when they're very upset about something, they actually destroy their own neighborhoods. They actually destroy Mm -hmm. their own businesses and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's what comes with anger and just violent outrage. And that's how these people are because this gas has made them live in harmony for so long and that's not natural to their system. So when you remove that, it's really on overdrive. It's really to the point of severe anger and hatred that they, they go at each other. And I don't enjoy seeing these different races fight each other, but I love the idea that it really shows what happens when you're really not in control of your emotions. And when something is suppressing them, that isn't natural to yourself, it can really do damage to how you handle your natural emotions. Yeah, I really liked that explanation that because they haven't had to deal with these emotions on a day-to-day basis, they haven't built up the techniques that normal people would use to kind of control them day to day. So yeah, it's like they're getting flooded with these endorphins that are just making them go crazy because they have no experience in dealing with them at all. So we've got the situation spiraling out of control. It's really turning into almost a quagmire. Like it looks like there's no way out basically, but Picard knows that Crusher is working on a cure and just has to give her time to do it. So what I find interesting is Picard at Vale, his security chief's request, asks for all available hands on board to assist, not just the security team members, but like all these crew members that when the planet's just in orbit, not really doing anything other than, you know, this action here, they they don't have a lot of things to do. There's a lot of crew members that aren't an active part of what's going on. So they request all available hands, which I thought was interesting, had a had a real weight to it. But he does also make it a volunteer-only assignment. So anybody who's available and wants to volunteer is to basically do duty on the planet as supplementing the security teams, which I thought, thought was really interesting. I would picture that being on the ship as a crewman and they're asking for volunteers, people are looking at each other like, I don't really want to volunteer, but I feel like it's expected. (laughs) (laughs) I got that impression too. (laughs) Who wants to go down there and like deal with these people who are fighting with each other? Like I wouldn't want to go down into the middle of that. That would be pretty Mm -hmm. scary. But you know, as a Starfleet officer, I I could also see where it would really trouble you because the thing about Starfleet and especially like even Captain Picard is you want to find the solution and Crusher even herself is trying to find a solution as quickly as possible because you don't want these people killing each other or ruining their resources and and ruining their communities. And time is of the essence. Uh, You know, it's a time to hate, you know, because time (laughs) is of the essence to stop the hate And it really is 
a very frustrating situation to try to come up with that cure, try to figure out that solution before these people really hurt each other. And then when you're going down and you're trying to stop it, you almost have to hurt them too. I mean, yeah, you're going to shoot them with, you know, a stun and, you know, just knock them out for a while, but sometimes you don't have that chance and you actually have to fight back physically. And so I can see this is very troubling time for them. Yeah, definitely. And going back to what you said about the volunteer mission, they didn't do exactly this in the novel, but there's a scene that comes up in so many shows and I really hate it because it's the same scene where you have a line of people and the hero says, I need volunteers for this. Uh, this is a volunteer only mission. Nothing will be said if anyone wants to drop out. And they look around for a couple seconds and they say, excellent. All right, let's go. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, that's just nobody in that situation is ever going to be like, okay, see yous and walk out because the peer pressure is just so horrible. There's, you know, if it was in real life, you'd be like, come and see me in private afterwards if you don't want to, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, oh, that just always bugs me. <laughs> I wonder if uh, Barkley went down there. Hmm. That's a very good question. I wonder. <laughs> hmm. hmm. Spinoff novel <laughs> idea right there. <laughs> I like it. Well, like we mentioned, Dr. Crusher is working on this cure. And I think we're going to get right into spoilers right away here because we are we don't have a ton of time compared to the usual episodes. So uh, just a warning, we're going to be getting into spoilers with this novel. Well, and as we mentioned on another situation like this in the Time 2 series, when you get to book two, you're already halfway through the story. So we are going to hit those spoilers a little earlier than usual when you get to a book two. So Dr. Crusher eventually does come up with a cure. And I'm putting cure in quote marks because what this cure is designed to do really is to reintroduce the artificial situation that these aliens found themselves under when they first moved to this planet, but without the life shortening effects. So like we mentioned, this Liscom gas shortens their lives while at the same time kind of tranquilizing them and make making them more docile. And that's why they're able to get along while back on their home planets, the respective aliens hate each other. So Crusher's cure is basically kind of a sedative that basically tranquilizes them a little bit, but doesn't have the, the life shortening effects. Like I mentioned, Picard kind of takes it on himself to impose this cure on the population. And his justification for this is that the leadership is either under the influence of this heightened aggression that they don't know how to deal with, or, and he says, you're either under that influence or you're drugged. So I'm taking this choice out of your hands, which I thought was, I don't know, a little bit questionable. What did you think of this choice? I think I really want more time to think through this um, than I've had a chance to. I mean, I agree with what Picard did in this situation because these people are not in their right minds. As I mentioned earlier, they're going to end up killing themselves. They're all going to fight each other and ruin their communities. And they have been peaceful for so long because of this gas that's been out there. And now that that has been reversed to introduce something else that isn't natural to their bodies to put them in a better place seems like the right thing to do because 
what do you do? Sit back and just watch them kill each other? And when you have a council of people that can't think clearly because of what is happening to their bodies and to their minds, you almost have to make that decision. This is why I wish I had more time to think about this, because you're really imposing something into someone's body without their consent. But you think it's for the good of them. And it may well be. But should you do it without their consent, whether it's good for them or not? Yeah, I I mean, on the face of it, I absolutely agree. I think in this situation, it makes sense it that this decision is made. And I think Picard made the right decision, I think. I don't know, but I still have problems with it because even though this is a special circumstance, I feel like it establishes a precedent. And if there's another planet where there's rioting going on or something, it's just that it's just one step closer to being able to say, okay, well, let's, let's use the same thing and, and tranquilize them and make them peaceful and docile and not fight and that sort of thing. Like, I feel like this is a lot of power to be giving to a starship captain. But at the same time, I can't really argue with (laughs) what he did either because it returned them to not their natural state, but the state that they had become used to for so long. I just also wonder what Starfleet and the Federation would say about this. And I was wondering, you know, is it a violation of the prime directive? And maybe these type of questions that we're talking through do come up in the next books. I don't know, because you and I haven't read those yet, because the next one is A Time to Kill, and then the next one after that is A Time to Heal. So I wonder if there's some connection between what we're talking about and what's coming up in the next books. It really is a tough debate of, is this the right thing to do or not? Because like your example, if you're coming up to another planet and they're fighting you with each other, do you send down some gas drug and make them love each other? <laughs> no, you, right. you would say no. I mean, as much as you want to have them stop, you wouldn't drug them to stop. And complicating the issue is the fact that the delivery system is through this rapid growing plant that is now going to be a part of their ecosystem and is really difficult to undo, basically. They do kind of sidestep the Prime Directive issue by it being a Federation planet. So there's a little bit more, you know, with Picard being a representative of the government of this planet. And they make that point a number of times when they keep blaming the Federation for what's happening they say, your government did this. And Picard says, it's your government too, you know? So they kind of make that point that, you know, Picard as a representative of the Federation represents the people that govern this planet, sort of. So maybe there's a bit of leeway there, but it's still, I don't even know if I want a government gassing their own people to make them more docile like that that seems even scarier to me somehow (laughs) well and these people haven't complained about it about what just happened to them the cure so Mm. i don't know again i wish i wish i would have more time (laughs) to think about it and i would love to hear what people have to say in the babel conference when uh this episode is posted because I mean, it's the age-old debate in Star Trek of, is it a violation of a prime directive? When should you? When shouldn't you do something? I mean, the answers in a lot of ways seem simple because you would think, oh, the best thing for these people is X, 
but then you're violating something by doing why. And do you have mm -hmm. the right to do that, whether you think it's good or not? Yeah. And I'm going to be a total jerk here. You mentioned the fact that these people don't complain about it, but that's after they've been gassed. So I are know. they not complaining because they're docile because of this gas? They're like, so high, they can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really a catch-22 argument that like is really... Oh, I, I I hate using the slippery slope argument, but this feels like a lot of power and just a slippery slope to like really dark things that could be done. But again, it's like you said, it's cure in a quote, but it mm. really, I don't know, is it, it does feel like it's a cure because these people have been on this planet for generations. So this is another generation that has been born in this environment with this gas and what the Federation did counteracts that gas. So it's indirect violation in the environment that they've been living in. And we're just kind of sending that back in a different way. So I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And like, like I said, in this situation, I do agree. I think it's the best of all possible options, but ooh, it just, it just wigs me out a little bit yeah. like, Ooh, what could this mean? Anyway. <laughs> so we've also got in this novel, Riker finally catching up with his father, Kyle Riker, and they both kind of together drop off the radar a bit. And they're kind of running around the planet, still chasing this murderer, L Bison L, who is just kind of the first of in a series of, of violent acts by these people as this, uh, the initial cure that was really anything but kind of makes its way around the planet. But we've got Kyle Riker kind of obsessed with being the hero and trying to put a stop to some of these things. And there's reports from all over the planet of two humans showing up and breaking up riots and that sort of thing. And we've got counselor Troy and Vale kind of on their trail for a bit. Now, there was one point here and you mentioned this in the outline and I appreciate it because this part weirded me out when I first read it. It just kind of seems to come out of nowhere. They're sitting in the little flyer that they've stolen to get around and Kyle Riker attacks Will and knocks him out ostensibly because he's worried Will is going to contact Captain Picard. And so he knocks Will out and smashes his communicator and destroys the communication equipment in the ship. Like, at this point, I think he's nuts and I like he's gone too far in my mind. What did you think of this? Because I just it kind of blew my mind. I, I was not expecting this at all. No, I'm in the same boat. I thought it was a little odd to see Kyle Riker be so violent to his son like that. But then again, if you go back and watch in the TNG episode, I mean, I know they're not beating each other up like that. But I mean, they are. He does cheat at that game or whatever that Anbo Jitsu. I knew you would know <laughs> <laughs> the most advanced form of martial art ever yeah. conceived or something like that. But to violently hurt your son to the point that you knock him out was a bit much. Maybe Kyle's being affected by the gas himself, but I, I do feel Kyle seems very desperate. So Again, just like this race of being, I think he's almost going a bit overboard because he does feel like he has to correct all the mistakes that he feels like maybe he get caused. I think he's very desperate 
to do what he's doing. And so when he hurts Will in that way and knocks him out, it is very surprising to me. But then even after that, Will doesn't confront Kyle about that for quite a while, which I thought was a little odd too, which makes me wonder if, you know, they had a bit of a violent relationship to begin with. Yeah. I mean, that might be part of it because it it did seem odd that, and I mean, maybe I'm just coming from a family that that would never, ever, ever happen. Like I could never conceive of my dad doing that. What well, do you so know my any dad, friends that say, oh, uh, my dad knocked me out again yesterday? Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, maybe things are done a little differently up in Alaska. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that just, it, to me, it seems so alien, so outside of my experience that like the first thing I would do when I woke up would be like, what the F and get the heck out of there because that's, yeah, no, that seems totally crazy to me. The only thing I can think is maybe Kyle Riker was looking at Will and seeing Pulaski, meaning that, you know, he's just like, Will is doing things that remind Kyle of Dr. Pulaski and he always just wanted to knock Pulaski out. So he took it out on Will. Oh no, that's even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, uh, we'll talk a little bit. uh, There's a few other things I want to say about Kyle Riker, I think for obvious reasons, but we'll kind of wrap back to that at the end here. But right now I want to jump to Will and Deanna. So in Star Trek Nemesis, we see them getting married. And the genesis of that, of course, was the rekindling of their relationship in Star Trek Insurrection. But in this novel, we get kind of that filling in of what happened in between there. And we see a huge progression in Will and Deanna's relationship. And the actual proposal, which I thought was really cool because it doesn't go the way either of them expected it, I think to go because due to this whole mission and everything that's gone on, Will's kind of examining his life and realizes that he wants to ask Deanna to marry him. So he buys a ring while they're (laughs) out on this planet chasing down this murderer, which seemed odd to me. I'm trying to, I was trying to picture how that went like, just in the middle of all this, a human walking into a jewelry store on this alien planet. <laughs> and presumably there's an all points bulletin out for them. Maybe, I don't know, but he manages to buy this, this wedding ring or this engagement ring, excuse me for Deanna and is going to propose, but Deanna kind of beats him to it, which I thought was really cool. Will's basically about to pop the question and Deanna says, Will, will you marry me? And he's like, what? (laughs) I love that scene. I thought that was really great. And I kind of almost want to be talking about this with Amy Nelson because I feel like she would just be squealing through this whole thing. Oh, that's a good point. Her being a huge Deanna Troy fan for sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I love the scene too. I love that she beat Will to the punch. And if anything, it just shows that this is something they both want. It's not one versus the other asking. And the other was like, well, I don't know. Let me think about it for a second. They both want this at the same time. And I also like then how they go to see uh, Picard and Crusher and tell them they wanted them to be the first to know. But the whole idea of Riker buying the ring on the planet is part of the aspect of what I love about this book and the previous book, A Time to Love. When we were talking about A Time to Love, the one thing I really loved about that book was the scene of Riker being in Sears' home 
and seeing a family life and just in a day in the lifetime of having a wife and kids and just living, living the good, simple life. I felt like that Riker was looking at things like this is something I would like. This is something that I need. And then seeing all the violence that's happening on the planet and also being offered a command of the Titan. There's so many things that are in question. And now you put his father into this mix of things and and his father then eventually dying as we get into spoilers <laughs> through this. There's just a lot going on that Will has to question where he is in his life. And so while all these events are going on on the planet and he sees a ring, I can see him thinking, you know, whether he's going to ask her or not, I can see him wanting to buy the ring just in case because he might want to do that. Yeah, it was really I, I, I really love the relationship between these two. And that's a good point. The fact that both of them are at that same point at the same time really just lends a even deeper level of strength to this relationship. And I totally buy that with everything they've been through at this point in their lives, this is where they find themselves. And it just makes a lot of sense. So because Will's been cool. missing for a long period of time and and Deanna's starting to worry. And I think she's having those thoughts of, you know, because they've now been dating for a while now for, you know, a few years. And so I think she's at that point too, where she's like, gosh, Will's missing. Are we losing time? Mm -hmm. You know? And so time is such a thing that it just keeps coming up, not time travel, but in this book, a time to hate, you know, are we losing time? And so they both re reach that conclusion together. Yeah. And like you mentioned with Kyle Riker dying in this book at the end, which was something I have to admit, you know, these books, I, there's a lot of things that sometimes you see coming and all this kind of stuff that floored me. I did not see that coming at all. And I, I probably should have, but that was really well done and an incredibly moving scene. And it moved me a lot more than I thought it would, because I didn't, I didn't have any particular investment in this character. I kind of thought, like we said, he was kind of going a bit crazy and I never really liked him to begin with. But that whole scene and what it means for Riker and the changes that are coming up in his life, I thought that was really impactful. So finally, at the end of the novel, we get this scene at the very end. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Robert Greenberger to ask him about this because we get this. It's almost tacked onto the end. We get Admiral Upton, who's the admiral who sent Picard on this mission to begin with, uh, talking with Cole Azernal, who's a part of the cabinet of the president, I believe, uh, the president of the Federation. And um, this man informs Admiral Upton that Dr. Crusher has found a cure. And we discovered that this entire situation was kind of engineered by the Federation to manufacture soldiers for an instant army. And this original serum that they had can be used to make aggressive soldiers and that sort of thing. So I've got to think this is something that's going to carry forward in future novels because wow, what a bombshell to kind of learn here. Yeah, definitely. The, the way these two stories play out in a time to love and a time to hate and this whole cure and the gas and how it's affecting people. And then you start to wonder, Oh, has the Federation really been behind this in a, 
more sinister evil way, you know, and is how much is Kyle Riker involved and how much does he know of this? If anything, this kind of reminds me of uh, it's the Star Wars side of me that's like, oh, this is kind of like Attack of the Clones or whatever. You know, there's an army being built, you know, for the old Republic. And uh, then I see this and it's like, oh, the Federation is using this race to possibly build an army. Quite interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering if it would come up that, you know, Admiral Sifidius was supposed to take possession of this army or something, but they never say that. <laughs> Ooh, Star Wars deep cut. I can do that too. There you go. <laughs> so with that, we should probably wrap up with kind of our final thoughts and ratings here before we talk to Robert Greenberger. So Bruce, what did you end up thinking of A Time to Hate? What I loved about these books is that it's a progression of the characters. It's Riker learning about himself, his immortality in a sense, and that he's losing time that he needs to move forward with his life and make some decisions. And it takes him working with his father and realizing what needs to be done. So um, and I love the whole cure and the gas affecting people. I found that just like an interesting play about warring race. So many times in Star Trek novels, it's, oh, you know, the Enterprise arrives and there's this one race and or whatever planet fighting with the other planet. And then they beam down, what is going on? Why are you people fighting? And it's some reason. But this is not that. This is two people that get along well because of the gas but then when you remove that they don't get along and it's just a natural thing and then how do you fix that what do you do and all those things we we're talking about earlier should you or should you not uh get involved and and come up with this quote cure so i really like that so i would say for a time to hate i would give this novel almost a full army of beings that are going to fight for the federation if needed <laughs> Because as we know, there's always another war. <laughs> there is. Yeah. No, I, I agree with a lot of this. I thought this was a really strong finish to this duology. I really liked a lot of the character work. A lot of the stuff with some of the Lower Decks characters too. Anne Huang is someone that I thought had a really interesting story arc here. And I really like what was said with her character. And also... This whole situation really makes these people feel like real characters with with real lives, much more so than in the television series. We get, you know, this kind of continuing story and an evolution of the characters. We get the evolution of Riker and Troy's relationship and Riker's relationship with his father was a really great exploration that I wasn't. I'll have to admit, I wasn't thrilled about in the first book. I wasn't really looking forward to that because he's a character that I never really liked. But what it says about Riker's character and what conclusions that Riker comes to and where it ultimately leads him, I just think are a very important story and a very well-told story. I really, really appreciated that and thought this was a really strong finish. And then with the little tantalizing hints for what's to come in future books, I have to admit they've put their hooks in me. I'm excited. I'm really curious to see where this goes from here. So yeah, I have to give this one, I think, a fully operational and repaired power plant thanks to the hard work of dedicated Starfleet engineers. 
Man, you sound like a Starfleet officer. Just right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm so proud of those guys. They did a good job. So joining us in today's episode is author Robert Greenberger, author of A Time to Love and A Time to Hate. And we're really honored to have him on the show. So uh, how do you prefer to be referred to? Robert? Bob? You know what? I sign everything, Robert, but Bob is fine. <laughs> All right. Well, Bob, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. You know, always love to support this, uh, the track novels in any way, shape or form. Awesome. Well, usually when we get an author on for the first time, we like to ask them kind of how they came to be involved in Star Trek, how they became a fan. So tell us a little bit about your background with Star Trek and, and your Star Trek journey, as it were. Well, I believe I was discovered in a cabbage patch on SETI Alpha 5. <laughs> no, um, I grew up a fan of Star Trek, uh, catching it at the tail end of its original run back in the 1960s and really came to love it uh, when I could see it all uh, when it was strip syndicated uh, in New York uh, in the early 1970s. And I was at the very first Star Trek convention and uh, was writing about Star Trek for my high school paper, my college paper, and was uh, going to the original conventions uh, by the original committee people, and then uh, volunteering to work there. So, you know, it was slowly but surely in the blood. Uh, I was reading the Bantam novels, very excited uh, about the possibility of, of a second Star Trek series, which became the movie, which wasn't as exciting. And then uh, when I graduated college in 1980, I went to work for Starlog Press, which was the publication to cover the science fiction field. At the company, I interviewed a lot of the Star Trek actors and read about Star Trek um, fairly often. From there, I also helped create the Comic Scene magazine, which covered comic books, comic strips, and animation. When they canceled that, I needed another gig because not that I had lost my job, but what they had me working on was not to my taste. So uh, I was very happy when uh, DC comics invited me to come over as an associate editor. And I joined them in 1984 uh, to work on the crisis on infinite earths and the who's who as uh, their two 50th anniversary project. But it became clear pretty quickly that I had time on my hands and Marvel Wolfman was a part-time editor on staff at the time, and one of the titles he was editing was Star Trek. So he knew I was uh, fairly versed in the series, so uh, he had me working with him. And when he stepped down as the editor, uh, it was briefly handled by Mike W. Barr, who was the writer at the time. And then when he left the series with issue 16, uh, they gave it to me to fully edit it, and I was running it for about eight years, which also meant that I got to launch the Next Generation comic when the series debuted. Uh, and from there, I got to know the people over at Pocketbooks. And when we started to coordinate what they were doing, what I was doing to try and make sure we didn't, you know, both do a Harry Mudd story the same month, um, I got invited to uh, their cocktail parties that they started to have because so many of the authors were in the New York area. And at one of those parties, uh, we were talking about these shared world books that were very popular at the time, such as Thieves World, which was uh, Robert Lynn Aspirin's uh, world, and uh, the beginning of Wild Cards from George R.R. R. Martin and company. So we said, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try a collaborative Star Trek novel? And immediately, Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman, and uh, Carmen Carter raised their hands. And I had been thinking about trying my hand at fiction, and everybody said, you should get in on this, because after all, 
if I suck, I have three other people to make me look good. <laughs> so uh, we did uh, the Star Trek Next Generation Doomsday World. And from there, Peter, Mike, and I collaborated on uh, two more books, which gave me the um, wherewithal to try my hand at a solo novel, which became the Romulan Stratagem. And I was contributing to the Star Trek line for you know the 10, 15 years after that. Wow, that's great. I mean, I've been on this journey with you because I was reading the <laughs> comics. I read your books as they came out. So, yeah, this sounds very familiar. But, yeah, you know, this is a big deal for someone like you that was so into Star Trek, went to the first convention, and now you're working on writing Star oh, Trek. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking dreams come true territory. I mean, it's what every kid who wants to be a ball player, who makes it to the big leagues, who, who wants to be an actor and gets a, a part on Broadway. I mean, it's the same journey. And we're very, very fortunate. And I think all of us toiling in the Star Trek universe recognizes what, what a rare treat it is, considering how few opportunities there really are in the grand scheme of things. You mentioned that you were doing the Star Trek The Next Generation comics right at the very beginning when that yeah. series started. Now, something that comes up a lot on our shows, because we, we talked about those early comics, I'm just wondering if I could ask, what was the genesis of the bickering Bickley characters in that very first issue? Oh, that's easy. Um, Mike Carlin had been writing the regular Star Trek Monthly for me, and when we cut the deal with Paramount to add Next Generation... It was easy with Mike on staff, um, with the NDA, you know, non-disclosure agreements, uh, for Mike to step in to write that, and I, which meant he'd left the Star Trek monthly book, which was great because it meant I get, got to give it to Peter David. Uh, we had a Bible that was an early enough draft that it was still Leslie Crusher, the girl, hmm, wow. and only uh, the pilot script, and I think one other episode and we didn't have a lot to go on, but we had to have a mini series out as concurrent to the debut in the, the fall of 1988 is humanly possible. Uh, and Mike recognized that the same problem existed in the next generation as it did in the original series in that we couldn't do substance, substantive things with car the main cast. And we didn't know the main cast, so we could fill in the bridge crew with people we could control. And Mike um, created the Bickleys, uh, which was named after a, a bickering couple on radio, old gold golden age radio called the Bickersons. And we oh, decided wow. to have some tension between a married couple serving together on the Enterprise because part of the difference 78 years later was that married couples and families could be on the ship and we wanted to explore some of that. Obviously, it was not well-received, and they vanished after a period of time. Oh, darn. Yeah, I would love to see uh, <laughs> Burns and Allen on the Enterprise. That would be really good. <laughs> oh, man, awesome. I just, it was a burning question because we we love those two. And what I'm here for. And they're great This stuff. just shows how much Dan and I think alike because I had just made a note to ask you that same question. <laughs> <laughs> and I will take full blame for the Christmas story in issue number two because I thought Gene was so anti-religion at that point, uh, but I knew that there had to be some cultures that celebrated holidays in some way, shape, or form. So I asked Mike if he'd take a stab at it. We did. Again, not particularly well-received, so we never tried that stunt again. <laughs> well, you don't know unless you try. That's the thing. Exactly, yeah. So how did you get to then do A Time to Love and A Time to Hate? How did you get involved in that series? 
by that point, I had been part of uh, the regular team of Star Trek contributors, and John Ordover was the editing editing the line at the time. And he had started to put together the the concept for a time two, recognizing that there was a year between the destruction of Enterprise D and the launch of Enterprise E in Nemesis. And he also recognized that when Nemesis opened, Riker and, and Troy were already, you know, having a wedding. Where'd the engagement come from? What what was going on in this year gap that that led to all of this, considering, you know, their romance had been simmering for years. So he thought there was a room to explore, and John loved to take marketing gimmicks from comics, including continued stories and uh, mega events, and was quietly putting together the plans for a time, too. And uh, on a fateful day in January 2002, uh, Bill Jemis, the president of Marvel Comics, told me my services were no longer required. And I was at the uh, I was at Grand Central Station, about to co- go home with my belongings, when my cell phone rang, and it was John Ordover on the other end saying, "I hear you've got time on your hands. You want to write two novels?" Because he was already thinking of me for the series, but he hadn't, you know, wasn't at a point. Uh, but he decided to, you know, leaven the pain of uh, losing my job by uh, springing this on me early, and it was like, "Well, that's kind of cool." By 2002, everything, you know, we were already doing a lot of email work and we were uh, using instant messengers, you know, probably AOL for the most part. And this is where John and I, and then later with some of the other authors, got to start sharing knowledge and how we would hand off from one two-set book to the next two-set book. Um, And it was evolving. Uh, We had some bumps in the road. We lost a couple of the writers so that the team of uh, Kevin Dilmore and, and Dayton Ward stepped in really with very little notice. And they were the two preceding mine and they were doing what they could to patch things together, trying to come up with a story because they had some very strict parameters. Um, but once we were moving past that and we got to my books, uh, the next two were going to be by David Mack and the two after that, which became one, uh, was Keith DeCandido. The, the good news is we we're all in New York. And the better news was the three of us were part of a group of people that met for lunch every Wednesday, which meant that for the entire duration of these five books being written, we saw each other on a weekly basis and could share knowledge and intelligence and riff ideas off one another, which is one reason why I think books five through nine hold together really, really well. Excellent. Yeah. And I, that that kind of close work together and, and that kind of stuff. Was that something that you had done before, like as far as uh, collaboration across multiple books, or was this kind of the first um, experience? It definitely of played off my comic book experience as an editor, where we were constantly doing tie-in issues to to various you know mega events, starting with Crisis on Infinite Earths. In novels, no, not really. Um, obviously, we had shared uh, casts because we were all working from the existing characters uh, in the Star Trek realm, but. Bit by bit, characters were being introduced in one person's book that we would pick up and use in our books, and suddenly they became regulars. Um, when Keith had started the Star Trek uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineer ebook series, uh, I got to write one and needed a security chief and realized that uh, I think it was John Bentoncourt had introduced one a while back that no one had been using since, so I used her again. And the next thing I know, Christine Vale is now a captain of her own starship. So, you know, this is what we do for each other. That's cool. That's one of the things I'm really enjoying about reading these books is seeing uh, a lot of these uh, characters that are big in the books now 
not necessarily maybe their origins, but you know, some of the backstory that I wasn't aware of because I hadn't read these books when they first came out, for example. Right. I mean, you know, in a lot of cases, the authors see what the other, the predecessors have done and said, oh, I could work with this, or I like how she handled this motion that tells me something about her character and I could play with that and, and move on. Uh, you know, so, you know, I picked up Christine Vale and my biggest contribution to her uh, as a character other than keeping her around was uh, her ever-changing hair color. <laughs> yes. I was wondering, because she was like a redhead and she's been a brunette and a blonde. <laughs> she's been all kinds of hair colors. Well, you know, one would think that hair dye was, you know, was a lot easier to manipulate in the future. You know, you see girls doing that now, guys doing that now. So extrapolate a couple hundred years and should be, you know, you know, five minutes in the, the fresher, you know? <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> I wonder if there's probably some sort of little device that they just wave over their hair and exactly who knows this color now. <laughs> Picard wishes he could do that though. Oh, <laughs> you know when we when we did the Next Generation comic, he uh, we had to do model sheets, and he had to sign off as did uh, Jonathan Frakes, uh, Marina Sirtis, and Lavar Burton. But anyway, the four of them had to uh, sign off on uh, model sheets and. They still got to see every issue. Every every month, the comic came back from uh, Patrick Stewart. Less hair, my head's pointier. He's like, okay. <laughs> so he was going. He wanted as as little hair showing as possible for whatever reason. Yeah. So were there any elements? I know it's been a long time, but do you recall if there's elements that you used from that you took from the comics and put in these two books? Honestly, I don't believe there were elements because the Star Trek comics at the time weren't in the same time period. I don't think there was a lot happening between D and E that, that we could pick up from from the comics. Uh, we were looking at what was going on in some of the other novels because by then there were Deep Space Nine books were, you know, tootling along on, on their own. Uh, Voyager, uh, there might have been something there. No, we were looking mostly within the novel universe. Uh, the comics really just... I don't recall anything for us to pilfer from. So now this is a great time in these books to bridge that gap over into Nemesis, like you were saying about right. so in this book. We explore the relationship of Will and Deanna and, and Riker's promotion going to the Titan and Beverly and Jean-Luc and Beverly probably going to Starfleet Medical. So tell us what your thoughts were on the whole building that bridge. John Ordover knew that uh, each two book set needed to be self-contained, but further the story and uh because i had he liked what i did with Riker uh in previous novels he decided that i should get the at the midpoint the actual uh proposal between will and deanna i rewatched the wedding sequence from nemesis and said wait his father's not there why is his dad not there for this most important moment of his life so i said probably because he's dead which meant i had to kill him so I had to, you know, figure out why Will and his dad, they're, they're, you know, would meet one last time that would show Will life's too short and it's time to, you know, propose. So that, that drove a lot of um, my thinking in terms of uh, Will and Deanna's character arcs there. The rest of it had to do with um, Picard was still on his way back from this seeming redemption after what, you know, at the end of um, the life cycle of Enterprise D. Interesting. Well, that brings us to something that I definitely wanted to talk about. And that's the relationship between Will Riker and his father 
in this novel. And I was wondering, using Kyle Riker in the book as you did with how he relates with Will, what kind of informed that story? What, uh, what made you decide to take that route? Will's dad had only appeared on one episode of The Next Generation. So I watched it and I rewatched it and I read the script and I wanted to see how the script described him and uh, what, what acting notes there might have been in that. And that helped inform how I thought the relationship might have progressed from that episode forward. Well, you know, they patched things up a little bit on the episode. I still thought, eh, you can't do it in one episode. There's got to be more to explore between the two of them. And if that does something that suddenly Will looks at and goes, wait, that that you made the wrong choice, more attention th- develops, which is why, you know, dad, dad is on this planet trying to help the people and makes a disastrous choice. And Will's like, oh, dad, we got to fix this. Uh, and, you know, gives them some more meat between the two of them. And then finally, uh, when dad passes, uh, it's like a wake up moment for Will because he really has been coasting. He's been refusing command. He's not marrying Deanna. Uh, he's been loyal to, to Jean-Luc, but he ain't getting any younger. Dad's now gone. Tangible proof that life does move on. Um, we wanted to build up because, again, we were at the midway of the nine-book series. We definitely wanted to shake up the status quo and build towards uh, a successful climax. It was really time to ratchet up some of the personal drama. It was a, yeah, it was a really interesting choice I found, especially that, you know, they, like you said, they do patch things up a little bit in this second season TNG episode, but the fact that no significant progress has been made since then, I thought was a really interesting because for one thing, it's episodic television. So, you know, they deal with all that in that episode and you never hear about it again. And I kind of liked how you actually used that to say that they haven't reconciled anymore. You have 25, 26 episodes per season, and we've met, they, you know, Jordy's mother. We met Data's father. Uh, Deanna's mother kept showing up, you know. So, like, the, we expanded upon the family. But by the seventh season, when they started to tidy everything up, we didn't get to tidy up every family moment. You know, I, I think in some ways, Generations killing uh, Picard's brother off screen was actually a false note. Uh, because there was such rich characterization in, in um, that third season episode. Fourth season episode, I should say. Yeah, agreed completely on that note for sure. <laughs> so in this book, we deal with this these race of beings on this planet, two from different planets, that these two races join each other on this one planet, and they're both warring races, but they get along and perfectly on this planet because of this plant that's on the planet that makes them seem to like each other and so forth. Where did that whole idea come from? That's a good question that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, I don't entirely remember where I got that from. Uh, I did have the idea that warring races in this optimistic future of the 24th century uh, periodically would take stabs at peace. Um, I thought the idea of Narenda 3 in Star Trek V, the War- planet of galactic peace, was a noble idea, and I'm sure it wasn't the only time it was tried. So it just occurred to me to explore what happens when you try and live and coexist together. And gosh, you know, we, we added the fact that, you know, when you're on another world, there are other 
uh, local flora and fauna that might have an adverse reaction that you don't realize up front. You might do all the genetic testing in the world until you actually live there for a while. Yeah. And it was interesting how then the cure, because they start living shorter lives and then the, they're cured of this plant that's infecting them that make them get along. Now they're warring with each other again. And now they've got to introduce something else that they have to come up with a solution to make them get along, but keep their lives long and not short. And there's a lot going on there. It was really interesting. Well, here in the, in our world, every now and then we make a mistake. We introduce rabbits to, you know, to, to an area that has no natural predator. We introduce uh, plants or um, trees that suddenly are growing out of control because they're, they're in the wrong environment or they don't thrive at all. Um, so you scale that up. You do that on a galactic uh, level and, you know, you're dealing with ecosystems, you're dealing with biospheres and things don't always work. And I think, you know, I, to me that, that makes for interesting storytelling more so than, you know, play, you know, uh, paradise. Well, one aspect of the story that I found really interesting was the character by the name of Anne Huang, and she is someone who lost her family in the Breen attack on Earth, and she finds herself on the Enterprise very much a loner, very much cutting herself off and still kind of experiencing that PTSD and that kind of antisocial behavior. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, what was the inspiration for that character, or what were you trying to say with the journey that that character was on? I don't think because you're dealing with 45 minute episodes on a weekly basis, you don't really get to see the repercussions of some of these attacks. And, you know, this is before dominion war happened and all where, where deep, deep space nine really could delve into that and chose to. Uh, so we were, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at survivors, survivors guilt, trying to move on. It, you know, it was, to me, it was just something that I had not seen before. And usually when I approach not, uh, any story, especially in a, a media tie-in like Star Trek, I, I say, all right, what have I not seen our characters do? And my first novel was based on the premise of what if Picard lost and came up with a diplomatic situation where the Federation lost a planet to the Romulans. It was like, how do you handle that? How on earth could someone as stellar, you know, as Jean-Luc Picard could, could lose a whole planet. In this case, it's how do you survive, you know, these attacks? How, what are the psychic scars? Um, if you're not trained like Starfleet officers, how do you move on? That really was the starting point. So that's what I love about Star Trek books and the comics is you get to explore those angles and those characters that you don't have the opportunity to do, like you're saying, in a TV series. Yeah. Uh, you know, prose gives you that that flexibility. You can really get into the heads. You've got more time where they can actually sit and talk to each other because you don't have to worry as much about moving the camera and static shots. Um, you know, everyone talks about the unlimited budget, so you can blow up entire star systems and not have to worry about the special effects budget. But you can also really go the other way and dig deep into the personalities and the characters and, and add people you don't have to worry about paying actors for, you know? Well, it's interesting because I feel like the situation that's been set up just gave you a really good opportunity to do that because something that they're not used to on the Enterprise is having to, I guess, deal with 
crew members who don't necessarily want to be there or aren't, you know, the, the cream of the crop because of this kind of hit to the reputation that they've taken mm-hmm. in these last few books. So I really enjoyed your um, opportunity and your ability to explore some of these issues that, you know, the best of the best in Starfleet, we don't tend to see that often. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, that that's where most of us as writers really enjoy any chance to get to those lower deck characters or the, or the other cultures and civilizations that we explore. You invariably want to look at the upstairs, downstairs part of, of, of the starship. You, you know, we've got the command crew and they're, they're the best of the best and we love them, but everyone else to deal with. Uh, it, it really enriches the storytelling possibilities, the, dr- the drama, and then seeing life aboard the ship in other ways. Excellent. Well, there is one other thing that I wanted to touch a little bit on. At the very end of the novel, A Time to Hate, we get this kind of clandestine meeting between an admiral and a member of the presidential staff. And we haven't read past this, so I'm not sure where this is all going, but it seems very dark and shady. And I'm just wondering, was this kind of something that you had to set up for later books or was exactly. this something that you kind of had? This, this came out of the weekly lunches. Um, what, once we knew what Dave Mack's two book set was going to be about and where Keith was going to go to tie everything together, we needed to do some foreshadowing and plant the seeds and it became clear, you know, setting it up there made the most sense. You know, when you got a nine book set, that kind of, that kind of work has to be done. And that, the, you know, I'm happy to help other characters, you know? Yep. You got to pass the baton. That's what's absolutely the race. <laughs> so now you're, you've done so many other things outside of Star Trek. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you've done in some of the other franchises? Well, the, the fun thing has been, you know, in some cases I make these like hit and run appearances in a variety of other media tie-in books. So I've written green Hornet stories and Zorro stories. Um, right now though, uh, from Chartwell Books, I've got three books uh, looking at DC Comics' greatest moments. Uh, Justice League, 100 Greatest Moments of the World's Greatest Superheroes is out now as a 304-page um, hardcover looking at you know the, the team through the 60 years. Out in October will be the companion volume, which is um, 100 Greatest Moments, uh, DC Comics Superheroines. And uh, about two weeks ago, I had just finished a manuscript for the Supervillains book, which will be out in uh, the spring of 2019. So that is the most current writing I'm doing uh, when it comes to comics and science fiction. It is coupled with uh, some original writing I'm doing or writing and editing for uh, the digital imprint that uh, Michael Jan Friedman helped create that Peter David and others are, and I are part of called Crazy Eight Press. And I'm currently working on our 2019 anthology, which is like a sampler, which is a tribute to the old pulp magazines. Um, so I'm assembling the crew for that. And uh, that should, that, that's actually shaping up to be a fun book. And uh, we'll be talking, I'll be releasing details about that in the coming weeks. And I'm a high school English teacher, so I'm a busy guy. Oh, awesome. <laughs> That's good to hear. We need uh, we need good high school English teachers out there for sure. <laughs> My kids here, I write books and they go, why are you teaching? You're supposed to be rich. It was like, I'm not John Clancy, Tom Clancy, you know? Like, 
<laughs> well, my daughter wants to be a writer and she says, she's 16 now and she says, well, you know, I'm going to teach school to pay the bills, but in my other time I'm going to to write. So maybe well, she'll have a similar path as yours. <laughs> that's great. Uh, there, there's a uh, teacher who also has written some Star Trek by the name of Kelly Fitzpatrick. So I know it's possible. <laughs> Awesome. Well, when people want to kind of follow what's going on with you and what's coming out, where can they find you online? Uh, I have a website, bobgreenberger.com, and my Twitter handle is at Bob Greenberger, and I'm on Facebook, so I'm, I'm findable. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. This was a really great discussion. No, I love you asked some great questions. Uh, you got me thinking about the book in ways I haven't thought of in quite some time, so I appreciate that. Oh, perfect. <laughs> We'd love to hear that. Well, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. You guys have good, good reading ahead of you. Okay. You know, what's so great about this is that I used to read the DC Star Trek comics as they were coming out back in the day when Robert Greenberger was the editor. I remember always seeing his name there. And then he started to come out with some novels and I was like, oh, that's the DC Comics guy. And he's doing star some Star Trek novels. And so it's really cool. But I've never met him. I've never seen him at a convention. We've just never crossed paths. And so I was delighted to hear from him that he wanted to come on the show. And now we've got to talk to him. So it's really awesome. Yeah, it was really great, especially. And I mean, I've said this before, but getting to talk to an author about some of the older books rather than just having them on for the new releases. It's just a bit of a treat to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain for some of this older stuff as well. So that, that was really special. And of course the comics too, what a cool avenue and, and area of the Star Trek universe to get a little bit of an insight into. And sometimes there's been thought, well, maybe the authors wouldn't want to come on to talk about an older book because it's been so long. And I will admit there have been times that authors have said, Oh, I wouldn't mind coming on, but gosh, it's been a long time. I don't know if I'll remember all the details of that book. And then there's others that are like, yeah, why not? And I think it all just starts to come back to them once we start talking through it. Definitely. Yeah. Well, fuzzy memories aren't the only thing that we've been talking about on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. You know, I remember the freedom of having my own car, and believe it or not, I actually had a Plymouth Fury. It wasn't a 58, right? No it way. Was, it was a 73, <laughs> but yeah, my first car was a Plymouth Fury, and there was, this is, the movie was part of the reason why. When I saw that for sale, it was a cheap car. I paid like 500, 300 bucks, something like that for it. It was in really Brandon, good Brandon, you really, you really didn't take the message of this movie. <laughs> you went out and bought one of those cars. <laughs> it was yellow. It wasn't red, you know, so. Who knows? Someone might have sprayed it. Standard Orbit. <laughs> We recorded most of the Shatner episodes. Every now and then we missed. Like, okay, we'll get it next round with Nimoy. We kind of thought it'd be the same thing. It's like, oh, there's going to be no difference. It's just Spock reading it instead of Kirk. No, completely different, right? So it's like, oh, crap. We should have bought 160 tapes instead of 80 for this. Literary Treks. I did like the scenes with his family and Riker, you know, spending the night at the home, getting up in the morning, having breakfast with the family. Oh, look, they made him coffee. There was just, there was just something really nice and settling about Riker just being in that situation and being treated with such respect and with arms around him, you know, just welcoming him and making him feel at home. And I guess you don't really feel that all that often in many Star Trek stories when you beam down to a planet and you're just welcomed into somebody's home and you're just seeing what a normal, happy family is like. Warp 5. 
that's kind of how Trip acted, though, right? He he needed to see this. He needed to actually step in uh, to the situation, and and I appreciate that. You know, like a lot of people give him some flack for being kind of pig-headed, or I think they even almost assume that he has a problem with the three genders. And he's like, no, I don't have a problem with the three genders. I have a problem that this third sex. I, I guess they get it wrong. Enterprise, the writers should have said sex the entire time they should have said sex but i'm guessing you know they're on tv and if they say sex a whole bunch they might get uh, the wrong the wrong idea and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in apple podcasts on iphone ipad or apple tv or the desktop itunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review because we haven't had one in a while. Because, you know, I'd like to read one here on the show at some point soon. Mm -hmm. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play, Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to play a part in helping us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, we'd love it if you wanted to do that. And you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We'd really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. This is the best place to do it is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. You just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that by using the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And, you know, if you're into the social media thing, you can find us on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group, and there we have all of our bookshelves with previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows, and there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics there as well. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Grozier, Brandon Shamutella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not making arbitrary decisions that affect the outcome of an entire planet, where can we find you? Well, then, if I'm not doing that, I'm a very boring person, and I must be just sitting there doing Twitter as Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with an underline, then Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars report talking about Star Wars. So check out that podcast. And you know what? You can find me in the Babel Conference on Facebook. Just type in B-A-B-E-L into the search field and it should come right up. <laughs> so, Dan, I think we already said that earlier. So, Dan, where can people find you when you're not proposing to Deanna Troy? Well, you know, just you keep that under wraps a little bit because Riker still hasn't forgiven me for that. So I will certainly not be broadcasting that I did that on Twitter. 
Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I make videos mostly about Star Trek. And on my book review website at treklit.com. And of course, just like Bruce, in the Babel Conference. And you know what to type, so I won't repeat it here. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.